0: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and it's Saturday. Time to go into the old vault, this time for an episode that you and Christian did back, uh, I think this was published originally in September of 2017. That's right. Uh, since we're doing the series on psychedelics, uh, I thought it'd be good to revisit these older episodes that Christian and I did uh, on Timothy Leary, looking at Timothy Leary, his biography, and the role he played in the the history of psychedelics. Uh, which is kind of a you know a double edged sword here, I guess. You know, it's on one hand he uh, he, he was at the forefront of the the counterculture movement, mm-hmm. but uh, he undoubtedly did a lot of damage too to the the reputation of uh, psychedelics.
1: Yeah, interesting that he has a controversial legacy, not just among. Uh, people who were opposed to psychedelics but among a lot of psychedelic supporters oh, and absolutely people who are involved in psychedelic research there uh, there's a lot of I, I don't know if you'd say anger but even in contemporary uh, accounts you read about people who are j- who just kind of hang their head and they're like man Timothy really really made things difficult for us
0: yeah yeah indeed uh, and we discussed some of that in the psychedelics episodes uh, that uh, that are publishing uh, right now. Mm-hmm. So uh, let's go ahead and jump into this one. Uh, part one of a 2017 look at Timothy Leary. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Christian Sager. And this week, we're talking about Timothy Leary. Now, we're not just going to talk about Timothy Leary. We're also going to talk about the science of LSD, the history of LSD, uh, the use of LSD and psilocybin in various uh, uh, research projects, uh, what these substances actually do to the mind, to the brain. Uh, but we're going to use Timothy Leary as kind of a, you know, sort of a guiding principle, I guess, for this episode. And if you're if you're out there and you're thinking, well, I love Timothy Leary, well, then strap in. If you're out there and you're, you're thinking to yourself, well, I, I don't know that I like this Timothy Leary guy, well, strap in as well. Yeah, I think we've got something for everybody here. We uh, were basically
1: sheltered during a hurricane this week, and so Robert and I just... Binge read about Timothy Leary for four days straight. We've got a lot to share with you. My eyes are bleeding a little, but I think you're <laughs> going to be interested in this so much so that we're going to do this as a two-parter.
0: Yes. Uh, now, just to refresh anybody out there, and to and to inform anyone who just who doesn't know who Timothy Leary is, well, Timothy Leary was. An American psychologist author and a key figure of the 1960s counterculture and psychedelics you know movement in general. He lived 1920 through 1996. And he managed to run afoul of pretty much every organization he was a part of. Uh, he was uh, arrested uh, enough times that he supposedly saw the inside of thirty-six different prisons. He, he earned uh, the ire of many Americans, even as he was able to s- cement a reputation as also kind of a, a you know a counterculture leader. Uh, his, and I think the reason is because he has this message of inner exploration, of anti-establishment thinking, and this, this resonated with folks and continues to resonate. His writings, his uh, soothing sage-like voice on numerous audio recordings, his, his, his irresistible celebrity allure, it all made him just impossible to ignore, love him, or hate him. Uh, plus, he was not the sort of guy to let the limelight go away. New, <laughs> and we'll and we'll get into all that. He, uh, yeah, he he clung to it, and uh, people gravitated to him as well. Uh, he was more than willing to rub elbows with scientists like Carl Sagan, artists like H.R. Giger, performers like John Lennon, uh, and you know such uh, luminaries as Allen Ginsberg, uh, Aldous Huxley, uh, William Burroughs, uh, Jack Kerouac, and Ken Kesey. He even kept the company of former enemies when it benefited him, uh, such as Watergate Burglar and later conservative radio talk show host uh, G. Gordon Liddy. Yeah, so this guy has been widely influential. He was –
1: I have a derogatory saying that I say sometimes about about people like Leary, although I think Leary was doing this before this guy. He was the uh, Cato Kaelin of his time. Like he was Uh famous for being famous. He was, yeah. Um, it, it wasn't because of a very specific thing he did. And we learned this through the research, but I have to be honest that, like, my experience with him was basically thinking, oh, this was an academic who had done some studies and then sort of became a guru-like figure, much like Sasha Shulgin when we talked about him during our two-parter on MDMA. Now, Sasha Shulgin was a practicing chemist who was in his laboratory up until he died, right? Yeah. Uh, Leary was not. Uh, he did do some... Interesting studies in the 50s and 60s, and we're going to get into all of that stuff. But first, I think we should probably talk about his influence on music.
0: Yeah, I have to say that before I knew anything about Timothy Leary, I knew the Moody Blues song "Legend of the Mind." Okay, this is the it has the chorus "Timothy Leary's dead," you know, yeah, and so forth. Wonderful, wonderful track. I listened to it several times while researching this episode. Uh, other fan music fans out there might recognize uh, the. the the, uh, the sampling of his uh, voice in various recordings, uh, probably most notably a live version of Tool's Third Eye, where they have the, the bit, uh, think for yourself, question authority. Um, and then you'll find numerous other musical projects that make use of his uh, soothing voice. Um, and in fact, he, I mean, he was involved in several of these projects as well. Uh, there's a, an ambient instrumental like sitar distortion album titled uh, Turn On, Tune In, Drop Out, which was one of his catchphrases. Yeah. And that's actually like really good listening. I, I fire it up every now and then. You just kind of you know chill out and and you know don't think about what's being said uh, too much. But um, the interesting thing, as, as we've uh, alluded to, is that there is this kind of surface level pop culture idea of Leary. Yeah, and it doesn't it doesn't necessarily hold up when you start going into the details of who he was, the sorts of research projects he was involved in. Um, Like, I I really wanted him to be more in line with with another... counterculture, controversial uh, character that we've talked about, John C. Lilly. Right. But there's not really a lot to compare the two besides the LSD connection. Right. And and that's actually kind of what's happening with this episode
1: is we're getting a convergence of two types of episodes that we normally do. Mm -hmm. We have a history of doing these two-parters on specific psychedelics Mm -hmm. and looking at their scientific and medical applications. But then we also have a history of doing episodes like the John C. Lilly one or the Sasha Shulgin Mm -hmm. one. call them our psychedelic avengers. And yeah. we thought, oh, t- we're going to merge Tim Leary and this LSD psilocybin research together and it'll be really interesting. It turns out that that he wasn't actually contributing to the research, but I think it does come together in a really interesting way thematically when we get to the whole piece of this. And yeah. in that I think he was a barometer for America's acceptance
0: of the idea of researching acid as being a, a medical tool. Yeah, it's interesting how he was. As we'll just discuss, he was uh, you know a spokesperson for this. He represented the, the you know supposedly a a learned academic who uh, was uh, who was advocating LSD as this this powerful tool. And yet at the same time, he also was such um, an inflammatory individual right. as part of the counterculture. He uh, a lot of people point to the harm he did as one of, one of the key figures, um, more so than John C. Lilly. Uh, who who vilified uh, the the counterculture and vilified the use of psychedelics, and one of the reasons is that psychedelics were not studied uh, for for decades. Yeah, there
1: are multiple researchers uh, in the notes here that we'll talk about throughout the course of these two episodes who point to Leary as being. The reason why we haven't been able to use LSD in uh, medically approved studies for what going on thirty plus years now? Yeah, uh, longer than that, I think. Even it was, uh, well, it's in the notes here somewhere, but it was in the mid sixties when it was banned. Yeah. So yeah, strap in because that's the other thing we're gonna get into. A real basic primer for you on what LSD is, what's the difference between LSD and psilocybin, and then
0: we'll roll into the Leary experience. Okay, so to go back to the very beginning here, let's just go to the the origins of LSD itself, since that's the, the, the main substance that we're going to be discussing here. Yeah. So, Swiss chemist Albert Hoffman synthesized LSD in a Sandoz pharmaceutical lab on November 16, 1938. Uh, Sandoz was working uh, on a research project involving a parasitic fungus called uh, ergot that grows on rye. Now, you may remember that uh, Joe and I recorded an episode titled The Psychedelic Nightmare of Ergotism that dealt with uh, ergot and uh, that... Uh, that is the same substance uh, that we're discussing here. And, uh, you know, aside from uh, noteworthy and, and truly horrifying breakouts of ergot poisoning in Europe, it has been linked to uh, various supernatural rites as well as as uh, as well as allegedly individual artists and artistic traditions throughout history, though I think sometimes those are mere theories. Right, yeah.
1: And so just to be clear here, Sandoz was a pharmaceutical company that started in 1886, and they began researching for more Novel kind of drugs in 1917 they were basically looking for therapeutic leads based on natural products so they turned to ergot why? well they had an example that they'd already created called ergotamine that was a drug that they had created for treating migraine headaches so Hoffman came along and he started looking at ergot and he saw the lysergic acid in it and he thought well maybe this LSD that I can synthesize out of this will be a good respiratory stimulant so for instance make maybe if you have acid asthma, you take some LSD and it will help you breathe better.
0: Yeah, so he ended up uh, deriving different compounds from uh, lysergic acid and he developed several medicines including drugs that lowered blood pressure and improved brain function in the elderly. And in 1938, he derived the 25th in a series of these uh, derivatives. It was lysergic acid dithalamide or LSD-25. And he thought that LSD-25 might stimulate breathing, circulation, but tests uh, didn't show anything special, and Sandoz abandoned further study. But then five years later, Hoffman's thoughts returned to LSD-25's potential, and he felt that it hadn't been fully explored. So he took the, uh, you know, perhaps unusual step of synthesizing another batch, for further testing, and during the process, uh, he began to feel strange. Um... The rest is history. He discovered the properties of LSD twenty-five, and uh, I've I've heard it described as his his problem child. Like, basically, the rest of his life, he kept uh, coming back to LSD and and trying to figure out, like, you know, what. What it can be used for, and right. how you know what are the true properties of this. At the same time, there's this kind of um, roller coaster of, uh, of of cultural awareness of it taking place in the background. Yeah, yeah, and he has that infamous bicycle ride as yes.
1: well. R- right after he takes it for the first time, that has been uh, sort of
0: mythologized over the years. Yes. Now, LSD, to be clear, is a psychedelic drug, meaning that it alters perceptions of reality, the shape of thoughts, uh, the connections that one forms. Uh, I, I can't stress enough that one should set aside any cinematic uh, ideas of what acid trips consist of uh, because it's it's rare to find a film that truly feels trippy in a way that matches up with the actual experience of lSD. you don't you don't see imaginary elves or anything. It's, if you watch just films and TV, you just assume that an, an LSD trip is a dream sequence, and a dream sequence is just an LSD trip. That these are in, uh, just ex- inter- interchangeable uh, uh, altered states of reality. Right. Yeah. Exactly.
1: I, I remember like growing up when kids would start talking about LSD and it being available to us. Just all the like various <laughs> like bizarre urban myths that people would tell. You know, like oh, there's this one guy who took it and. And uh, he thinks he's an orange now, and he doesn't know how to oh, yeah. stop being an orange. Or like another one was like, this guy took it, and he saw a g- bunch of – everybody looked like giant white gorillas to him, and he <laughs> fought all these gorillas. And it's like these sort of spectacular stories. While it does have hallucinogenic properties, mm-hmm. or uh, they're mythologized.
0: Yeah, I always think back to an episode of Strangers with Candy where there's a, a story of a girl who t- took LSD and tried to force herself through a keyhole. Right. You know? <laughs> now, that's not to say that – uh, that nothing bad can happen while well, one is on LSD. We'll have some examples of that as, as we go on here. But in terms of just like what the experience of, um, of LSD, that basically what is a psychedelic experience, uh, oddly enough I'm, I want to turn to some the words of, uh, of Timothy Leary okay. because I thought that, a, that he actually managed to sum it up rather nicely here. And, uh, and I'm, I'm going to go ahead and read it in my impersonation of Timothy Leary uh, because it's more fun that way for me and hopefully for you. <laughs> Of course, the drug dose does not produce transcendent experience. It merely acts as a chemical key. It opens the mind, frees the nervous system of its ordinary patterns and structures. The nature of the experience depends almost entirely on set and setting. Set denotes the preparation of the individual, including his personality structure and his mood at the same time. Setting is physical, the weather, the room's atmosphere, social, feelings of persons present toward one another, and cultural prevailing views as to what is real. It is for this reason that manuals or guidebooks are necessary. Their purpose is to enable a person to understand the new realities of the expanded consciousness, to serve as roadmaps for new interior territories which modern science has made accessible. So to give you an idea of what LSD
1: is like outside of the experience, outside of getting turned on as Leary would put uh-huh. it, right? It starts within about an hour of when you first take it and it can last up to 12 hours. Uh, there's a peak about halfway through that experience and the effects vary widely but biologically they include dilated pupils, increased blood pressure, high body temperature, dizziness, sweat, blurred vision and tingly hands and feet. Uh, the primary effects though are visual, which is more what Leary is describing there. You get Stronger colors, brighter lights, trails, halos, and patterns. Overall, people say it provides a sense of happiness and euphoria that's very emotional. However, though, as we said, this can also lead to impulsive
0: behavior and poor judgment when you're under the effects of this euphoria. Yeah, you, you feel your body as if it's something new, something different. You smell and taste the world in a different way. Visual stimuli is processed in a, with new areas of focus, new details, and, and the same can be said for cognition, uh, and the same can be said for the, the basic processing of time. And so, indeed, that is the, uh, that is the essential psychedelic experience uh, in a nutshell. And there's one thing I'd like to point out before we go further here, which is that we don't actually know
1: how it affects the brain entirely. And why don't we know that? Because there's never been any scientific research on how it affects the brain because it has been banned largely – in the United States and some other countries for, for the last couple decades, as we mentioned. So this is kind of a problem. We've got this thing on our hands. Everybody knows about it. Mm-hmm. We, we have a general
0: understanding of it, but we haven't done the research. Yeah, and we've touched on this so when we've talked about uh, marijuana, psilocybin, uh, as well as MDMA. You have these substances that just became banned research into their um, properties. Right was at the very least uh, professionally taboo uh, for so long. So yeah, th- th- despite the fact that they, they clearly have powerful properties, we don't necessarily understand them all that much. It's believed that LSD works similar to serotonin, a neurotransmitter res- r- responsible for regulating moods, appetite, muscle control, sexuality, sleep, and sensory uh, uh, perception. And LSD seems to interfere with the way the brain's serotonin receptors work. So it may inhibit n- neurotransmission, stimulate it or both. It also affects the way that the the retinas process information and conduct that information to the brain. So you might be listening to this and saying, "Well, hold on. I've
1: never taken any of this stuff before, and you're just kind of throwing these terms around. What's the difference between LSD and psilocybin?" Well, psilocybin is a fungi and that's classified by botanists and mycologists, people mm-hmm. who study mushrooms, while They were used by the Aztecs in religious rituals. The American public didn't really find out about psilocybin until 1957. And this was when an article in Life magazine recounted the adventures of a New York banker in Mexico where he tried it. Huh. Yeah. LSD, totally different. It is colorless, odorless, and tasteless. And ingesting just 25 micrograms is enough to feel effects. Now, to give you an idea of what 25 micrograms is, that's less than the weight of two salt grains. It is very quickly metabolized by the human body. Now, as previously established, LSD is a chemical that's synthesized in a laboratory setting, whereas psilocybin is a fungi that's grown in nature. One is natural. One is created in a lab. Several chemicals that could go into LSD are currently sales-restricted here in America or are monitored by the Drug Enforcement Agency. And there's all kinds of different recipes on how to make it. Uh, Some start with lysergic acid that's derived from morning glory seeds. Others use that ergot fungus that we talked about earlier and how it was discovered. They culture that and they extract ergot alkaloids from it. This fungus and LSD itself can break down when exposed to light, and that's important to note as well. In this ergot recipe, the solvents and reagents involved are also very dangerous. They're poisonous, carcinogenic, and explosive. So it's fun, I would imagine, <laughs> working on this stuff. Like if you've got your little laboratory, you've got to be really careful. Yeah. You know, this is like a, um, some Jesse and Walter White stuff where you've got to be really careful about what kind of stuff you're concocting and what you're breathing in and whether or not you blow up your trailer. Yeah, I and mean, this is straight-up chemistry.
0: Uh, and that's yeah. the other difference. <clears throat> Psilocybin is... Uh, is ultimately a, a, it's it's about uh, I guess scavenging or yeah. or growing uh, a naturally occurring organism. Uh, this is chemistry.
1: So the way you do it is you synthesize the ergot alkaloid into a lysergic acid compound, and you do this by adding chemicals and applying heat. Afterward, you isomerize the compound so that the atoms in its molecules rearrange. This involves some cooling, mixing it with an acid, an actual acid, not the the term acid, also a base, and then evaporating it. The remnants are ios-lysergic diethalamide, which is then isomerized again, and that produces what's called active LSD. So finally, you purify it, you crystallize it. Uh, Afterward, LSD can be made into tablets or it's dissolved into liquid or made into gelatin squares. Most often, it's dissolved into ethanol, and then that ethanol is added to sheets of blotting paper that are then dried, cut up into little pieces, and people get tabs. Yeah,
0: it looks just like the candy that you can by, I'm not really sure on the history of that, candy, you know, the one where it it basically looks like blotter acid? Yeah, yeah. Like, which came first? That's a good question. Is this this like candy cigarettes, or (laughs) is it just a happy coincidence that... uh, This terrible candy looks like acid. Yeah, that
1: is curious. If any listeners know, please let us in on the secret there. Uh, A lot of you have probably also heard about bad trips. We mentioned them earlier. Well, it's not really clear what causes these bad trips, but they result in fear and paranoia, and treatment usually requires basically going to a quiet space so that the user can just come down. but sometimes you have to administer anti-anxiety medication or tranquilizers. So that that's important to remember as well.
0: Yeah, I, I, this makes me think of uh, of a lot of the the research involving psilocybin um, that really ultimately kind of backs up some of what Leary said in that uh, that bit that I read in that a lot of it comes down to to priming, uh, preparing the individual for what the trip is going to consist of. Yeah. And then, of course, personal uh, medical and per- personal psychiatric history is going to play into that scenario oh, as well. Oh,
1: yeah, absolutely. Now, you've also probably heard of flashbacks, right? This is the other thing. Like w- when I was in high school, like all the legends, it was like, oh, he's going to see those white gorillas <laughs> yeah. every year for
0: the rest of his life, right? Like something like that. Oh, yeah, it's it, this is something that is uh, that pops up in, in films and TV from time to time. And it's either just completely ridiculous like the white gorilla as or even when it is a lot cooler and more believable, say with the first season of True Detective, yeah, right. there's still a lot a lot of uh, of doubts from some individuals as to, to what extent this is a, a thing or, or a realistic depiction of it, if it is.
1: Yeah, here's the deal with flashbacks. There's no evidence to support the idea that LSD remains in your body forever in amounts inside your brain or spinal fluid. People say that, but we don't have any mm-hmm. evidence on it. Why? Because we really haven't been able to study it, right? Uh, some people People think, though, that this is what causes flashbacks. The majority of users, though, report never having had flashbacks, and of those who have reported it, many are mentally ill, and some doctors believe that what they're perceiving is actually a form of psychosis that emerged due to the LSD use. There's actually a medically recognized disorder called hallucinogen persisting perceptive disorder, and this is for people who constantly experience visual hallucinations after they take LSD. This is a little different than the idea of flashbacks
0: flashbacks. Right, I mean it's also worth noting that that visual hallucinations can occur for a number of reasons. Um- so it's it's entirely possible that one could 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 take LSD and then what a year later they experience some sort of visual hallucination and one of the main ways they can describe it is the the narrative of acid flashbacks yeah and then they're going and then that becomes encoded in memory. So one last thing I want to make clear
1: about LSD before we we cap off this summary here, LSD is not an addictive drug. So if somebody tells you you know you, oh you, you're going to take that you're going to get hooked on it or something like mm-hmm. that that's just patently untrue uh, the, the real basic way that it works is that if you take it a lot your body is going to get used to it and subsequently the effects are going to lessen over time so that's the opposite of something mm-hmm. that you become addicted to it, it doesn't work in the same way as
0: something like heroin right though I, I'm, some people may point out there's the whole idea that like the first time you take heroin is the, the best and then you're always right. chasing that dragon uh, but still, the LSD, psilocybin, uh, DMT—any of these uh, psychedelic substances that we've discussed on the the program before—they are—they are not addictive in the the very literal way that uh, stuff like heroin is. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and we come back. We're going to continue to talk about uh, psychedelics, and in particular, we're going to talk about psychedelics in medicine. All right, we're back.
1: So according to Timothy Leary's archivist, a guy named Michael Horowitz, before Leary, the research being done on psychedelics was mostly done by the CIA and the army. Ah. Uh, makes us think of, uh, of strange, John C. Lilly again. And Stranger Things, yeah. yeah. But they were looking to weaponize it, dosing subjects without their knowledge. Now, what he's actually talking about is the CIA's attempts with stuff like Project Bluebird and Project MKUltra to develop mind control techniques. We actually have an episode about Stranger Things coming up in the next couple of weeks where mm-hmm. we're going to talk more about this stuff. The basic idea here, though, I'm going to boil it down quickly, is that they were inspired by Nazi research experiments in the Dachau concentration camp. Subsequently, they tested on helpless populations like prisoners, drug addicts, and mental patients. And at one point... The government reportedly ordered over 100 million doses of LSD from Sandoz, that company that discovered it, so that they could experiment with contaminating a water supply. So they wanted to weaponize this and basically see, like, can we put a whole bunch of LSD in one of our enemies' water supplies?
0: You know, th- this really sad thing about this uh, portion of the story is that it, it underlies... Uh, You know, a a fact about uh, about military um, first research, you Mm -hmm, know, mm -hmm. that essentially military researchers come in and say, "Okay, can we use it to kill people better? Can we use it to uh, enable our our warfare in some uh, way, shape or form? And if not, well, then we're done with it.
1: We see this time and time again on the show whenever we dig deep into topics, whether it be uh, the weaponization of animals we've done an episode on or a lot of our space-based stuff is usually related to weaponizing space in some way. Uh, So actually, the government, Sandoz wouldn't supply them with that much, so they turned to another company. They wanted the company (laughs) to break Sandoz's patent and produce the chemical, but the whole thing never came to pass, and the government essentially deemed LSD too unpredictable for their general use. Now, Leary pioneered research into how psychedelics could reveal the nature of human consciousness and possibly help people with depression and anxiety. But he also precipitated a backlash against psychedelics that criminalized them and made it impossible for others to do research on them. Uh, Leary supporters argue that's not Leary's fault. This would have happened anyways.
0: You know, and I can see... I you know I can see both sides of that, but he was undoubtedly um, a, a key figure, and in uh, a in a very uh, you know ultimately a very like hateable figure. Like part of his yeah. his charisma and his charm, it just worked like poison <laughs> against uh, people who already had
1: uh, you know a conservative bent. Yeah, it's true, and we're going to see time and time again uh, people turn against him, and not the kind of people that you would expect, right? So let's back up for a second here. What about before Leary? How were scientists and researchers looking at it before that? Well, in the 1950s, some researchers began investigating whether psychedelics could treat mental health disorders or addiction. The federal government funded 116 of these studies between 1953 and 1973. Again, I turn to our episode on MDMA and Sasha and Ann Shulgin. They're a perfect example of this. Along those lines is kind of what was going on with psychiatrists and very uh, researchers working with LSD and patients to see how it could work. Sandoz
0: was essentially selling it as a psychiatric product, right? And these and these were reputable research operations. Yep. we had not yet gotten to the point where Leary comes along or or John C. Lilly comes along and, and you know starts uh, giving it to dolphins. R- yeah,
1: exactly, <laughs> or, or giving it to himself while he's right. hanging out with dolphins. Uh, now the Sandaz company patented it, but they sold it as Delacid beginning in 1947, and they sold it in 25 microgram tablets that were designed for analytical psychotherapy. They suggested that the psychiatrists themselves take it so that they could better understand their patients' experiences. Now, when they stopped making it, they said, this is about the fact that there's a lack of regulation and that there's inaccurate information being perpetuated about this drug. But between 1950 and 1965, 40,000 patients were given Delisid tablets, basically legal LSD. Hmm. And Dr. Max Rinkel was the first to bring LSD to the United States and then test it on a population of a hundred volunteers. He and his colleague Dr. Paul Hoke noted that LSD produced effects that quote mimicked schizophrenic psychosis. So this is you you can see what there's some as another theme that we come back to over and over again on the show is uh-huh. like early. Uh, psychological theory seems to be very uh, generalized and biased, right? And this is another example of that. They're like, oh, there's this thing. Uh, It just seems to make you schizophrenic, you know, Uh, and there just wasn't enough research behind it. But recreational drug use increased dramatically in the 60s, such that as many as 2 million people had dropped acid by the 1970s. So, By 1965, there were very few researchers who were allowed to possess LSD. Only six projects were conducted in 1969. In 1970, the U.S. Congress added psychedelics into the government war on drugs, and the federal government declared these drugs had no medical use. The chairman for New Jersey's Narcotic Drug Study Commission called LSD the greatest threat facing the country today, more dangerous than the Vietnam War. Seems like a little hyperbole in retrospect. I think so, yes. By 1974, the National Institutes for Mental Health declared that LSD had, quote, no real therapeutic value. So there was a strong establishment bent against this drug, which Timothy Leary, unfortunately, did not help with his antics. Uh, Today, though, LSD is a Schedule I drug in the United States. It's under the Controlled Substances Act. This basically means the government believes that it has high abuse potential, which we've already established that it's Mm -hmm. not addictive. Uh, It has a lack of accepted safe uses when taken under medical supervision. We'll talk a little bit about how there actually are some of those.
0: And that it it basically has no current medical use in their minds. Again, there's evidence that it does. Now, I want to remind everybody that by placing it as a Schedule I, they are placing it in the same category category is marijuana, Mm -hmm. and uh, and they're placing it in a stricter category uh, than Category 2, which includes cocaine. Yep.
1: So since then, only a small number of studies have been conducted. Uh, You've got small sample sizes, so there's not a lot of research that we can rely on. The early results are broad. They suggest that when used by people without a family history or risk of psychological problems, psychedelics can actually make us kinder calmer and better at our jobs. They also help us solve problems more
0: creatively and make us more open-minded and generous. Yeah, it's it's interesting when you look at the research uh, here about these potential uses for uh, psychedelics. Uh, one is insolent reminded of meditation because both both meditation and psilocybin have been shown to shut down the default fault mode network, that constant stream of worry, chat about past and future in your brain, um, and the, the brain activity is similar, even if the experience, uh, you know, obviously isn't going to always be the same, though uh, there there is often a certain amount of crossover. um, And we'll have to get into that more when we do a focus on meditation in the future.
1: Yeah, I mean, what Robert's referring to is the default mode network. This is a group of structures in the brain. They're found in the frontal and prefrontal cortex. That's what's responsible for our ego and our sense of self. And Mm -hmm. it's why we as humans have very rigid, habitual thinking that, let's face it, we can obsess over, right? Yeah. On psychedelics, it, that slows down and the boundaries between the self and the world dissolve, allowing for therapy sessions that can be more
0: effective. Yeah, yeah. There are a number of uh, excellent studies here. A 2011 study at John Hopkins University gave high doses of psilocybin to 51 test subjects. and According to uh, ABC News, uh, 30 of these individuals experienced measurable personality changes that lasted more than a year. So, as of 2016,
1: a year ago, about 500 people have participated in formal psilocybin experience, that's not LSD. It's worth remembering though that these volunteers are self-selected and are carefully screened and then are guided by therapists. So psychedelics used outside of control settings, yes, they can cause problems including bad trips where the users feel extremely anxious and depressed. This doesn't account for the occasional flashbacks that we talked about earlier, whether that's a real thing or not, right? The possible future of research is very promising. Patients are recognized recommended for treatment by a doctor, for instance. This might be what we we look at in a, a few years, right? Uh, you get recommended for uh, LSD or psilocybin treatment by your doctor. They get you screened for mental illness. They look at your heart to see if you have any heart conditions. Then they're prepping you about what to expect. Uh, you're monitored by a medical professional while you're under the effects. This is someone that they have, uh, you know, established a trusting relationship with you. It's not just some scary orderly who stands there the whole time. They have to to work with you for at least six to eight hours ahead of time, then the experience you have is contained, so it's something you can build a life around, right? You can, you can figure
0: out how to solve the problems that you're going in for around this. Across the board, though, we're looking at, at openness as one of the, the key positive um, uh, results of uh, psilocybin use, um, other hallucinogens that have been explored in these various research programs.
1: Yeah, and so you look at uh, what are the possibilities here. If we can get the FDA to reschedule it, what can we do with it? Well, there have already been studies that have looked at how psilocybin or LSD can be used to help terminal patients deal with end-of-life anxiety. You can potentially help people who have addictive problems. There's been studies that have been done on smoking cessation and alcoholism related to it. Uh, And then also psychedelics can potentially help mental wellness. There's been a number of studies that have been done basically looking at how it can prolong positive changes in attitude and mood. Um, When I think about LSD or psilocybin for myself, I've never taken either. But when I hear these very controlled laboratory conditions described – Uh, As somebody who's never taken it, that's actually more appealing to me, the idea of it being done in a controlled setting like that.
0: Um, Well, you know, the the crazy part about it is that like the idea of of, say people or young people taking LSD, psilocybin or whatever and not really knowing what they're doing and having – you know, maybe a positive experience, maybe a negative. Like that's that's not in keeping a with the the clinical use of it, but but all, but b with the uh, with the traditional use of some of these substances. Yeah, where you would have not a scientist but a shaman to administer these things. There were rituals. There were there was a process. It was communal. Yeah, it was a communal experience with lots of priming.
1: Yeah. Now, so just from my perspective, because I know I have a history of depression and anxiety and my family has a history of depression and anxiety, I've always worried, well, I don't want to take this because I might have a bad reaction, right? Remember what they said some of the setup was Mm. is they needed to screen you for certain things. I'm also curious, though, they say things like it's going to increase your interest in fantasy and imagination. And I want to know how much more interested in fantasy and imagination I can get because I'm already pretty well down that rabbit hole. One of the things that these researchers say is that when they take a look at it, it can help change your personality if you're having personality problems, right? The, the general idea is that personality is fixed after the age of 30. But with the help of psychedelics, you may be able to overcome some, you know, boundaries that you're facing in that respect. And I just think that's interesting. I've always just kind of anecdotally thought about it about 10 years later than that. Like pretty much everybody I know, by the time they're 40, they are who they are and they're going to be that way. I have not seen anybody make any drastic changes. But it seems like if they have really difficult emotional problems in life that they're trying to get over, it seems like there's a possibility here that if we were only able to study this further, it might be an option for people like that,
0: yeah, I mean, I guess it's one of those things where you know we we like we may think of ourselves as set in stone after a certain point, but but we're not we're not really. I mean, we know that the the mind is uh, and, and memory is more malleable than that uh so. Psychedelics come in as a as a possible means to loosen things up so that they right. can be reset. Uh, and of course, that being said, drugs are not the only thing that I think that that can allow a person to do that. I mean, sometimes something as simple as say travel, uh, new experiences, um, re- reading a book you wouldn't have otherwise read, this sort of thing. And generally oh, yeah. having a creative curiosity about life uh, can can change who you are. I think one of the the interesting things in some of these studies uh, is that it, it makes you wonder, like, is is the person that has administered the substance, are they this, the kind of person that is not a novelty seeker? They're not – they don't seek out new experiences otherwise. Like maybe that's the kind of individual for whom some potential future treatment would be best used. Like somebody who's yeah. – who, who really can't shake something negative in their life. Uh, and They have a pretty established routine of yeah. how things
1: are, but at the same time, they recognize that there's something about that routine that is is dysfunctional
0: for them or for the world around them. Yeah, there's some sort of cycle that needs to be broken. Uh, there's something that needs to be uh, you know, just pulled apart so it can be put back together in a slightly different form.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think that's a good way to approach it. So why don't we take another break, and then when we get back we're going to officially dive in to the Leary stuff, and we're going to start
0: right at the beginning. All right, we're back. Okay, so we're going to talk about Timothy Leary for the rest of this episode and then into the next episode as well. Uh, Yeah, We're going to start at the beginning because... I think a lot of the stuff that happens on, you know, early on in his life is going to be key. And it's interesting when we talk about this in terms of like at what point is someone's personality set? At what point right. is somebody's destiny kind of set? Uh, well, according to uh, Robert Greenfield, who wrote uh, Timothy Leary a biography, yeah, you can, you can sort of see a lot of that in Leary's early life. So he was born uh, October 26, 1920 in Springfield, Massachusetts, to uh, an Irish Catholic family— his father was a struggling dentist, and uh, his mother was a, you know, a working mother.
1: That's my neck of the woods, Springfield, yeah. Massachusetts. Yeah, my uncle works there. Uh, it's just uh, my whole family's from the western part of that state, so I have a very clear picture in my head now of what okay. his, <laughs> his young upbringing
0: was like. So uh, according to Greenfield's biography, uh, you can really attribute a lot of Leary's rebelli- rebellious spirit uh, to his uh, relationship with his father, Tote. An alcoholic uh, who brought imbalance to the home and depended on uh, charity from family loans to prop up his struggling dental practice. Now, uh, the young Tim Leary occasionally stood up to his father, but was also forced to hide from him on the roof on some occasions. And then Tote left the family when Tim was only 14. Uh, Leaving him to find solace in books about mythic heroes and uh, and legends and he uh, was determined to become something better, greater than his father and his mother obsessed as well over her her child's future. Like how can I engineer uh, somebody for success? And so Greenfield argues that we see the seeds of Leary's relationships with authority figures throughout his life, uh, you know, pinpointed in his early life, uh, as well as his relationships with women. He would go through periods of finding structure within an, in- within an institution, but would ultimately rebel against its order. And in times of distress, he'd seek out women. And for positive father figures, he turned to, uh, not to his own father, of course, but to uh, flamboyant and uh, sometimes dramatic family members. And he depended on the emotional and financial support, uh, uh, first of all, of his mother, and, uh, and, and Greenfield identifies a pattern of his uh, leaving most of them along the way. Yeah, I mean, I think like one of the awful
1: themes that we're going to notice by the time we get to the end of this two-parter is that he left a a wake behind him of uh, either abused people or dead people. I mean, his well, we're going to get
0: into it. Yeah, there are a number of self-destructive tendencies in Timothy Leary's life. All right, so in terms of his uh, his school and his uh, sp- essentially pre-psychedelics career, uh, Leary attended classical high school um, alongside American author bi- and biographer and historian William Manchester. Some of you might be uh, familiar with him from uh, A World Lit Only by Fire, The Medieval Mind and the Renaissance, which is an excellent book. And he also went to uh, the same school as uh, Theodore Geisel or Dr. Seuss. hmm he went to the College of Holy Cross in Worcester. Uh, this is a strict Catholic school that, of course, inspired rebellion uh, from Leary. He made money gambling on sports. He frequently hopped the wall with other uh, adventure seekers in order to go out drinking in town and chase girls. Mm. My my father, yeah, from Worcester,
1: so. Huh. Also, like um, this is like connecting the dots. So to give you an idea here, if, if you're not familiar with Massachusetts at all, Springfield's in the western part of the state. Worcester's sort of in the middle b- between uh, Springfield and Boston. Okay. So it's not – I mean, it's like 45 minutes probably from where he grew up.
0: All right. Well, the next place we're going on the map here for Leary is West Point. And this is where uh, – uh, he initially just goes all in on the culture of West Point. He, According to, to Greenfield, he's writing back to his mom with just the maximum amount of West Point lingo you can possibly use. And this is telling, too. Like, he'll start off yeah. really into a culture – and then he rebels. And indeed, he, he does. He returns to his old ways. He even faces a court-martial for drunken behavior. He's acquitted, but then he ends up facing what's known as the silence or was known as the silence. This was a, a policy that ostracized cadets who broke the honor code. This was discontinued in 73. And uh, he ultimately ends up resigning and is honorably discharged by the army. Then he applies to colleges across America. Uh, The University of Alabama at Tuscaloosa accepted him first, so that's where he went. He met Dr. Donald um, Angus Ramsdell, a Harvard uh, psychology uh, uh, PhD, a man who Leary would later refer to as Dr. D, which I found uh, (laughs) interesting. That's interesting, interesting, given our episodes on the real Dr. John D. Yeah. (laughs) And... uh, He soon immersed himself in the study of psychology and and biology. Uh, And now having lost his draft uh, deferment, he enrolled in ROTC to avoid the draft. Uh, And then he also ran afoul of the school here due to womanizing, so much so that the dean even accused him of sullying, quote, the honor of Southern womanhood, (laughs) and he was expelled. Man, like just uh, from my
1: po- perspective, from, you know, being from up in New England and in, in the 2000s mm-hmm. moving to the south into a v- progressive southern city, uh, I had a lot of culture shock. I'm trying to imagine what it was like for this guy, uh, you know, all these years ago. Uh, just transitioning and jumping around and getting into trouble
0: and just really shaking things up everywhere he went. Well, it's interesting. One of the sort of side things uh, in in Greenfield's biography that he points out is that apparently at the time, uh, the university in Tuscaloosa You had these various liberal uh, academics and in many cases, um, um, homosexual academics Mm -hmm. who had found sort of a safe environment in in which to thrive. So in a a sense, like if if Timothy Leary was going to go to anywhere in the American South at that point, uh, Tuscaloosa was probably one of the places to go and he did find people who who valued him and embraced him, you know, initially. But he wasn't quite able to to finish his, his uh, academic duties. Oh, of course not. Now, on the advice of Dr. D, he goes on to enroll in the University uh, of Illinois. He lines up work in the psychology department. And he eventually completes his education uh, at Tuscaloosa uh, remotely. But, uh, uh, yeah, it's one of these situations where um, – Uh, You you just see this pattern over and over again. Uh, As Greenfield uh, writes, a clear pattern in his life had already emerged. Whenever Tim Leary began accepting the kind of success for which he had been programmed since birth by his mother, he would stop the process by indulging, just as his father had done before him, in self-destructive behavior. So Leary then goes on to get his master's degree
1: at the University of Washington. We're talking about Washington State now. So he's already jumped from New England to Alabama to Illinois— and now up to Washington State. He received his doctorate in psychology in 1950 from the University of California at Berkeley. So then he jumps down to California. Here he decided that conventional psychotherapy was useless, and he began experimenting with group therapy and transactional analysis. So this gives you an idea of like where he was at sort of academically discipline-wise before he was introduced to psychedelics. His first wife, Mary Ann, committed suicide during this time. This was in 1955. This left him to raise their two children alone. We have more on this, obviously.
0: Uh, yeah, it, this was just a real sad situation for a number of reasons. But basically, uh, he, he and Marianne had a very— uh, Open relationship? Well, yeah, but also just a chaotic relationship. Just a lot of—according uh, to, to Greenfield's account in the biography— just a lot of negative vibes in yeah. this uh, in this relationship. A lot was not working. Uh, Leary was uh, apparently looking to end the, the relationship in the very near future, anyway. And then uh, she committed suicide. And it was you know, it's not like Leary wasn't an unfeeling person. Uh, right. Like this had a huge effect on him. Uh, like he would write about it. It's just essentially a, a pit that he wasn't able to emerge from emotionally for. Uh, you know, for for, for decades even. Uh, and then, you know, to, to say nothing then of the, the children as well. Now, the urban
1: legend of this goes, this is what, you know, I can't imagine how many articles and books Robert and I read for this, but it probably popped up in every single one of them, is that the night before, they were having an argument about their open relationship and about that he was— Uh, in a relationship with a woman that he loved more than Marianne, his wife, Mm -hmm. and that she was upset about this and she wanted him to break it off. And he went into the bedroom and said, it's your problem, not mine, and closed the door. When he woke up in the morning, she was dead. She had suffocated herself in the garage inside the family car.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. uh, In Greenfield's account, he kind of points to the different versions of the story. So, like, there's the... There's like a slightly different version that he, t- that he tells the authorities and then he writes about later and, you know, you can sort of try to find the truth between all of these. Uh, uh, and, yeah, it's just a really ugly situation with an ugly ending. Uh, it is, but it's also, uh, unfortunately, I think
1: – an important sign of things to come with this guy mm-hmm. and, and sort of where his priorities were, right? Uh, and I don't want to end this, this episode because we're, we're about to wrap up our first part here, but I don't want to end it on such a super downer. Uh, he went on afterwards to teach at Berkeley, and he actually was the director of psychological research at the Kaiser Foundation Hospital in Oakland, California from 1955 until 1958.
0: Now, during this period, uh, after uh, his wife's suicide, uh, he uh, he also ends up going to uh, to Europe a few times. He goes to Spain. He goes to Italy, and uh, this is kind of key. There is this. Um there was this period of time uh, when he was uh, when he was in Spain, and he he suddenly experienced this some sort of a mysterious illness. Uh, so swelling, uh, pain. Uh, he was attended to by a, a Danish doctor, and he ends up pa- passing this night in misery. Ends up sending the kids to stay with another couple of uh, of, um, of Americans who were staying uh, close by. And he says he said that he felt like he died during this time that he that he let go and he put the past behind him. But in a in a very interesting way, it was kind of his first psychedelic experience, like a taste of this altered state. As yeah. a, you know, not to be confused with all the times he'd gotten just blindly drunk uh, in the past, because he had previously and for a lot of his life had a, a severe alcohol problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, it's, it's uh, shortly after that, too, that uh, Frank Barron, who was who's a colleague from Berkeley, uh, he, uh, he, he visited Leary during an unproductive stay in Florence, Italy. He was always going on these trips to try and, you know, to, well, to, to write various things. And uh, at this point, Barron told him that during uh, his research into creativity, he'd interviewed a psychiatrist who had used magic mushrooms to produce visions and trances, and that Barron had tried them as well, resulting in a mystical transcendental uh, insight. Now, interestingly enough, Leary warned him that he might lose his scientific credibility if he babbled on about this sort of thing. <laughs> um, <laughs> and that, my friends, is what we call foreshadowing. Yes. <laughs> so in the next episode, we will get into the uh, the, the psychedelic. Uh, experience of uh, of Leary, basically one continuous psychedelic experience that lasted his entire life and uh, basically dragged American culture with it. Yeah, please make sure that you tune
1: into that second part. It's got a lot more of the juicy details of Timothy Leary's life and the science and research that he did into LSD and psilocybin. If you want to reach out to us about this episode and any of the stuff we brought up today regarding LSD research or possibly Timothy Leary's history, you can always get us on social media. We're on Facebook, we're on Twitter, we're on Tumblr, and we are on Instagram.
0: And if you want to get in touch with us the old-fashioned way, just uh, shoot us an email at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on
1: this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com.